it is actually quite a moving uh, moment for me, um, not only because I haven't been back to Oxford all that often in all these more than 30 years since I left, but, um, but also because uh, the occasion of being here with uh, Ramon is a very special one for me. Ramon and I worked together very closely for nearly 10 years in Lisbon, um, and, uh, and when that project came to, to an end, we both left, and now we find ourselves here. And so it's, <laughs> it is a great, great pleasure to be here. And it is an immense pleasure to see and have the occasion to see so many faces that I haven't seen all that long ago, and that it's a great pleasure to see them again. Thank you for coming. All right, well, I will be talking... My paper is called Brazilian Serialities, Imagining Persons. And now I will be talking, basically, about naming. And with hindsight, I can now trace my present fascination with the relationship between personhood and naming to my first confrontation with the English-speaking world in South Africa in the early 1970s. Back then, in Johannesburg, my rather typical Portuguese middle-class name, in all of its lengthy complexity, evoked aristocratic images that countered the dominant view in Johannesburg of the Portuguese as an uneducated, poverty-stricken group of half-castes. This aporia promoted in English speakers a feeling that somehow I was going under false pretenses. I found out that I could not, feel, I could not but feel uncomfortable before their hesitation when dealing with my name. Much as I knew there was an equivoque involved, it was, however, in the mid-1990s, when studying the Eurasians of Macau, that I developed a more systematic analytic interest for the workings of personhood and the way they can be highlighted through studying the equivoques characteristic of transcultural interaction. The debates concerning personhood that were all the rage in anthropology back then promised to open up a new perspective where the sociocentric proclivities of our anthropological predecessors could be creatively reconsidered. Having carried out a short bout of informal fieldwork in Mozambique in the early 2000s, I came to be convinced that black persons whose often bilingual names necessarily pointed to the colonial past were prone to confronting a similar sort of aporia to the one caused by my own name among English-speaking South Africans. Therefore, in 2004, when I moved to the study of Brazil, more particularly to the mangrove regions of the southern coast of Bahia, I decided to focus on modes of personal naming as my main area of ethnographic attention. I have since then written quite a lot about the topic. Nevertheless, perhaps because I could see it was such a fascinating and analytical challenge, I have stayed shy of one of my first ethnographic surprises. Among the low-income population of the provincial town that I studied, Valença, some of you have been there, um, personal names were often surprisingly creative. And this has two sides to it. One is the issue that I'll be discussing to you, the issue of seriality, um, and the other is the issue of humor. And that's, that will, I promise, be the last paper on naming that I'll ever write. But I haven't written it yet, because it's probably the most difficult. <clears throat> the historically dominant practice amongst Portuguese and Spanish speakers of naming children by means of a rather short list of time-honored saints' names 
was less favoured in Valença than a mode of inventing names by articulating onomastic particles, which presented itself both as more creative and more evocative. To cut a long story short, there was a taste for attributing names, serially. In this paper, I will argue that onomastic seriality is particularly illuminating when we want to explore the way in which familial persons are constituted. The word series refers to a category the terms of which form a sequence, being related to each other by means of a formula of derivation. I am particularly interested in open-ended series, for they subject themselves to the sort of imaginative disposition that Rodney Needham long ago designated by the word polythetic. Now, if we adopt a view of personhood as constructed within sociality, the propositional act of naming someone, or of naming oneself, can be seen as an act of imagination. <clears throat> in this paper, I want to explore the way in which Brazilian practices of onomastic seriality operate as instances of creative imagination. So, uh, 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 you will excuse me if I start with a general discussion on personhood. Levi-Strauss argues that in the justly famous chapter on naming in The Savage Mind, he was trying to show that in any society, even if people think they are acting freely, their choice and use of proper names reflects a way of slicing up the social and moral universe, of categorizing individuals, and of translating how each culture conceives of the reciprocal relations between human beings and their various domestic animals. You will all have read that chapter, which remains a very important one. In the present paper, I propose a different outlook on naming. One where the exercise of creative freedom is seen as the very mode through which persons are formed in sociality. Rather than slicing up the social and moral universe by placing previously defined individuals within previously determined categories, Proper naming is seen as the mode through which historically grounded persons, that is, persons in ontogeny, are brought into being. What I am prone to disagree with in Levi-Strauss's theory of naming is that it places societies as analytically separate from personhood. To the contrary, I see social processes as constituting themselves by accumulation in history, not as a response to pre-existing systems of symbols, but with person, within personal ontogeny. Persons are, so to speak, the ground of sociality. Allow me, therefore, to outline here the more general principles of the way in which I treat personhood, which I have been developing over the past five years in a series of papers centered around the topic of naming. Of course, my original inspiration was the thinking of D uh, uh, Donald Davidson, the analytic philosopher, but... Processes of sociality occur among other species. Non-human species also have complex forms of communication based on intentionality. What there is not in other species is reflexive subjects engaged in propositional thinking. In short, persons. We become persons when we are in sociality with other humans who are already engaged in their own history of personhood, their own ontogeny. The process of entering personhood is not something that is consciously enacted each time for each one of us. Intersubjectivity is not a choice. It happens. Humans entice other humans into personhood because they are prone to include babies in their lived worlds. It is all rather inevitable once a baby is among humans and is being cared for during the long period of maturation that the human species demands. 
If humans do not bring me up, I do not become a human. Therefore, company, <coughs> that is, plurally cohabiting the world, is the indispensable condition for personhood. In order to be a person, I have to be enticed into personhood by other persons. Not only one, but various others in the process of linguistic communication. The arousal of subjectivity in the person, that is, the oncoming of propositional thinking, happens through an engagement with a plurality of human beings. A kind of triangulation. And that's one of the main points that I want to put across. This means that the condition of being in relation predates any specific relation between determinable persons. To put it in Judith Butler's words, primary relations precede the formation of what we call an ego. And even the ego is understood primarily as consisting of <coughs> modes of ego-relatedness. End of quote. The primary implication of this notion of relatedness for our present concern is that, is that each one of us carries a prehistory, as it were. There is in our personhood an, a historicity, an imminent pastness. This is this, this word by Emine Martins that I like so much. Paradoxically, however, the pastness of personhood cannot be bounded by personal ontogeny. In the sense that if the person emerges from attachments that predate the person's co constitution, then whilst the child is new, the other is not. And as Donald Whittacott came to understand long time ago, it is never only one other, therefore triangulation. In short, since there is a foundational alterity in personhood, the notion that there is a clean beginning to it makes no sense. Not only do persons emerge from the embrace of earlier persons in child-rearing, but they also see themselves as causally linked to earlier persons, that which anthropologists usually refer to as filiation. Such a process is not a generalized condition. Rather, it is grounded on specific human relations whose history is unique in the case of each one of us, our history of personal ontogeny. Whilst the history of each one's existence as a determinable person is immersed in the long history of sociality, none of us can be reduced to a simple manifestation of an overarching totality. Our namers are particular others, not a generic other. To borrow Maurice Bloch's words, there exist no human beings in general, but only specific human beings who are made different by their culture. But I would have rather preferred to say with Christina Torren, made different by their specific personal history, their ontogenesis. Personhood then involves at least three different aspects. Call them alpha, beta, and delta, okay, just to simplify the argument. The physical person, the phys physical human person in ontogeny, indeed a truly individual phenomenon, if you cut me in half, I die. So that's alpha. Then the uh, arena of presence uh, uh, and action, as Mark Johnson has, Johnston has called it, a individual and partible phenomenon, not only in Melanesia and India, but everywhere else. And delta, the historically constructed narratives of personhood which pervade the environment within which personal ontogeny occurs. Here, individuality and individuality are combined in very many different ways, depending on what has been called cultural difference. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is that I, I speak of a person, but then I speak of aspects of personhood. And these aspects of personhood demand that we approach them uh, with different uh, methodologies, 
to the extent that they are epistemologically distinct. That's the argument. It's the same thing, but but even this last formulation of personhood delta raises problems, for it might be interpreted as implying that people have concepts in their heads that their culture gave them as concepts, and that they share with the other member, uh, members of their culture as concepts, having learned them as concepts. Now, all this is false. The cognitive processes of each one of us are indeterminate and cannot be repeated. The newer notion of the person is nothing but the identification by the ethnographer of a statistical recurrence among the newer in the ways they deal with personhood. It is the fact that in order to circulate in a newer world, one must assume a determinable but open-ended set of associations and recurrences that amount to broad parameters of what persons are in that particular historical setting. It is important not to jump to the conclusion that person alpha the, 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 the physical person would be universal person beta would be individual and person delta would be cultural this would be to assume both a mind-body polarity and a representationist model of mind as indeed Bloch does in that book that I quoted from uh, analytical dispositions that I for one have learned to regret we should be clear, therefore, that alpha, the material person in ontogeny, beta, the reflexive person, and delta, the culturally shared frameworks of personhood, are all both universal and historically specific. The notion that human inheritance in history is divided into neatly separable cultural worlds, ontogenies, is to me a sociocentric mirage that has produced much misunderstanding and hindered our anthropological theorizing. But so is the notion that one might be able to have any grasp of personhood, delta, the cultural, per, the cultural person, the newer notion of the person, aside from its instantiation in actual human persons. It would be like suggesting that there are cultures whose identity lies outside of history, the complex history of human interaction. Only physical, reflexive and interactive persons can come together in culturally identifiable modes of being person. In short, there are no generic newers. This being said, we realize that the attribution of personal names and personal pronouns is one of the central processes that launch personal ontogeny. Persons are called into being in narrative processes, both metaphorically and literally, and that's part of the argument here. Before I proceed, I, I do have to uh, uh, um, specify a little bit about Portuguese processes of naming. In Portuguese-speaking contexts, the, present, the person is hypostasized within speech by means of a conjugation of three modes of naming. The first is the attribution of proper names, which happens either before the person is born or shortly, shortly afterwards. These days, actually, because of the, te uh, of the uh, tests, uh, it happens before. Uh, we've we've come, out, uh, come to realize that most people, when they're born, they already have a name. Even when parents are not religious, proper names are associated historically to Christian baptism and to Christian notions of the soul. They characterize the person in his or her intimacy, and their use emphasizes close interactive contact tending towards a type of Christian egalitarianism. The second mode is the attribution of family names or surnames, 
These can be inherited either from the father or from the mother, or both. These surnames are not treated as having any religious or spiritual implication. To the contrary, they are treated as a political fact. I don't have time to develop this here. I've developed it elsewhere. It's very interesting to see the way first names and surnames are used totally differently. And the expectations, the semantic implications placed on each one of us, of them, are totally different. It's an interesting thing. They inst- so surnames institute the person's relation with the state and therefore they are only treated as having been attributed after the child is registered, either by the parish priest, as happened until the 1930s, or in the civil register, as has happened since then. Today, the mother's father's surname is placed first, in Spanish it's the other way around, and is prone to be dropped in everyday contexts. And the father's father's name is placed at the end and is the person's main formal reference. Thus at schools, in professional contexts, and for the state, the father's father's surname, father's father's father's, etc., is expected to be the person's principal bureaucratic referent. In the Iberian Peninsula and Southern America, however, onomastic patriarchalism is no more than a tendency, and it dates to the implementation of the bourgeois legal codes between the mid-19th and the mid-20th centuries. It's very interesting. It's very recent. And in fact, in northern Portugal, it gave rise to popular revolt. And as, as late as the 1910s and 20s. So it's, it's a recent thing. If you speak to most Portuguese, most Portuguese and Brazilian people, they think it's ever been like that. But no, it's, it's recent. Previously, parents had a large freedom in the choice of surnames, and they chose the surnames the child would bear from among a pool of surnames that were thought to be associated to the family. Often, therefore, siblings from rich families did not bear the same surnames, and people of no substance, whose relationship with the state was tenuous and marginal, tended not to have a surname. This is what gives rise to the sort of long names that middle-class bureaucratic families have adopted and that South Africans found so puzzling in my case. But it also fosters a kind of freedom of choice in familial identification that although it is today theoretically constrained by the law, continues in fact to be exercised. For example, many of our colleagues at ECS, I worked out that it was about a third, published their, their works under the name uh, uh, under the name of their mother's mother's father uh, uh, under their mother's father's surname because they feel they are closer to that as they put it side of the family so uh, uh, and this kind of exercise of, of surname option uh, which is so uncharacteristic of Portuguese of English French and Italian naming systems is uh, 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 is very much more prevalent in the Iberian Peninsula and in the Portuguese and Brazilian case it is uh, very strong these two modes of naming persons pertain so surnames and person names to be the only true ones that is they are taken to be more valid and more real than the third mode of naming what I will call here nicknaming. Uh, but I will not get into that because that's a whole different topic. So I'll, I'll, I'll pass by that. In this paper, I will be dealing mostly with proper names. And this is relevant for my argument concerning personhood. As proper names are the mode of naming that more closely qualifies the person in his or her singularity. 
When asked to refer reflexively about their own self, people are prone to use proper names rather than surnames. This is significant, for it connects with a historically rooted tradition that sees intimacy and personhood as essentially spiritual. I was very influenced here by Given's History of the Christian Soul, which I recommend. It's a very good book. That is, Portuguese speakers are prone to associating their personal singularity with their conscious awareness of themselves. Thus, when I introspect, it is more appropriate for me to refer to myself, myself as João than as Pina Cabral. João is the name of my soul, the essence of my personhood. Pina Cabral is a collective qualifier. So, uh, it, it, uh, so this can be turned around, okay? So I know cases where wives call their husbands by the family name, thus creating what to a normal Portuguese person is a kind of an aporia. It's a sort of a, the wrong thing. And the idea is precisely to do that, thus emphasizing a kind of proximity. It's very interesting. They, they, they sort of do it by opposition. By calling their husband Ferreira instead of Manuel, they're kind of calling, uh, convoking the opposite of what they're doing. In such a tradition, surnames operate more in the categorizing manner than Levi-Strauss described above. As a matter of fact, in the savage mind, he already identified the importance of the difference between serial and group naming. It's quite interesting. He has it there. Then he doesn't take the, the, the impl uh, implications of it. Contrary to surnames, personal names are more prone to reflect the sort of constitutive contagion between persons that Levi Brühl used to refer to as participation or that silence has recently identified by the expression co-presence. Onomastic seriality does not form groups of persons. Rather, it creates chains of persons. It is characteristically open-ended, and it places people within networks of relations by means of triangulation. <coughs> Moreover, there is nothing specifically Brazilian about proper name seriality. The use of generational particles in proper names among Chinese upper-class families during the Qing dynasty, and still in Taiwan is still very common, are a well-known instance. Another one is the custom of naming children with the first letter of their grandparents' proper names, as remains a habit among Ashkenazi Jews in Europe, Israel, or the United States. The practice of creating intergenerational namesakes might be seen as a form of seriality. But I will leave it out of this argument here because I dedicated a special paper to it. And from a comparative point of view, it's a whole different argument. In this particular paper, I will deal with a mode of naming that in Brazil is associated both to a hankering for consumerist modernity and to the sort of large cohorts of siblings and cousins that have characterized the urban and peri-urban modes of living of low-income populations up to the present day. Brazilian colleagues have argued that with the decrease in family size that is presently occurring, this, serial fashion, of, this, this fashion of serial naming will fade. This might well turn out to be the case, but I have no evidence to point in that direction. As name seriality is, common among, uh, uh, is as common among siblings as it is amongst cohabiting cousins, the reduction in the number of children a woman has should not affect the process, seems to me. For example, I recorded a group of siblings named Marilson, Moasir, Maila, and Mailani. Another called Leia, Lucio, and Liani. Another, Edson, Edgilson, Edmilson. And all this is 
variations on the name of, uh, of uh, Pelé. Okay? So, so there is that. <laughs> there is a reality in the fact that the siblings' names bear the same particle, usually, but not always, at the beginning of the name, linking it up to a grandparental or, grand, uh, or parental name. But there is a reality also in names like Antonadia, a colleague of ours in Brasilia, which conjugates the names of both of her parents, Antonio and Nadia. Or Ilda Ilze, which conjugates the names of both grandmothers. There is also a kind of grammar of constitution. So, something son, something ar, or something io are male suffixes. And ani, aila, eli are female suffixes. This kind of grammar, however, will never come to be a precise science, as what drives the whole process is precisely a desire to be differenti. So breaking it is of the essence. So I will start with a, with a banal instance of first name use in which I participated in Brazil. Uh, sort of an ethnographic description. On first arriving at a gym... I probably needed it more than now, but I still need it, but in any case. Um, I, on first arriving at the gym, I introduced myself um, to the gym attendant, uh, a handsome woman of about 25 years of age. Following general Brazilian practice, I merely used my first name. Meu nome é João. In turn, she replied with her name, but I failed to grasp it. She smiled when I asked her to repeat it, thus signaling that she fully expected me to ask again. She replied in a practiced fashion. In fact, she pronounced it with an H and a Y. Now, you have to know that in Portuguese alphabet, H, uh, uh, Ys uh, and Ws don't exist, and uh, uh, Ks, uh, Ks, Ys and Ws don't exist, and Hs are not pronounced. So she's pronouncing it, she's signaling Englishness, okay? So Rivian, she pronounces. By now familiar with Brazilian naming practices, I immediately made a, a whole series of conjectures based on that name. Briefly then, I first surmised that this was a proper name and not a surname. Second, it was what Brazilians classify as a nomi differenti, an uncommon name. Third, the fact of, uh, of it being uncommon pleased her even as it made her have to spell it out again to all newcomers. Fourth, the constitution of the name pointed to it being a serial name. Fifth, her parents belonged to the recently urbanized lower middle class, and the fact that she readily presented herself by that name and not by a fashionable abbreviation or hypocoristic meant that she too belonged to that status group. A few days later, when I got to know her better, I asked so, do you have a sister with a similar name? She smiled again, acknowledging that she was pleased that I had guessed and proceeded to provide me with a lengthy explanation. In fact, in spite of being interrupted by other clients, she returned twice to the side of my stepping machine in order to finish the story. Debating her name was something that she felt valued her and that could be legitimately done in public. Yes, I have a twin sister called Hizis. She said, as it turns out, she also has a irmã de criação, a foster sister, whom her parents named Haldani. I pronounce the H the way they do it, as a throttle H. In fact, all these names refer to the mother's name, Helena, with the H as well. The father, in turn, is called Wilson, and the two brothers are called Winston and Wiverton, both with W. 
Finally, her youngest sister is called Laura, failing to comply with this reality. This too was something that I was fully expecting. Having encountered numberless cases of sibling name seriality throughout Brazil over the years, I have had come to see that serial incompleteness is the norm, not the exception. Briefly then, how does Rivière read her name and those of the people whose names are tied to hers? As I gathered, she is pleased with the connotations of these names. In fact, she stressed in her explanation that they remit to a cosmopolitan world that she and her parents value. In this way, the personhood is tied to forms of living to which they aspire within today's global order. Her brother Winston, she explained, wrongly as it turns out, has the name of an American president, and the other names in the series, Wiverton, Wilson, and Khaldani, are also American names. Never mind if she was wrong. As it turns out, the very letters W and Y do not exist in the Portuguese alphabet. I've said that. That her name should be different, in fact, is valued because, as many people explained to me over the years in Brazil, it picks them out from the crowd. It means that they did not copy, and the word copy is the word used, anyone's name, that they are themselves alone. This connects strongly to the value of self-affirmation or auto-affirmation that Luís Fernando Dias Duarte has identified as central to contemporary Brazilian living. I'm referring to his latest book on, on uh, his own family in Rio. It's a very interesting book. That differentness should be such an open that sorry, that differentness should be such an openly acknowledged value. In no way implies that these people are any less conventional than other peoples around the world. It does not even imply that they do not repeat names. For name repetition is also a notable feature of local personal naming systems. Thus, people will often give the male firstborn the exact full name of the, grandfather, uh, of the father, grandfather, or uncle, adding a particle uh, indicating the relationship, so respectively junior, filho, neto, or sobrinho. Further still, they are also prone to give the names of celebrities to their children, actresses, singers, football players, American presidents, etc., or what they think are American presidents. A woman explained to me proudly that her children's names were all connected. That is, they formed the series. As they all related to soap operas. One was given the name of a character, the other the name of an actor, and the third a well-known, the name of a well-known socialite who is the wife of yet another soap opera actor. Her name being part of a series fosters in Rivière a sense of sharing an important part of her personhood with the people whose names connect with hers. Both intergenerationally her mother, and intra-generationally, her sisters. She emphatically acknowledged this by relation to her twin sister, Hizis, whom she claims to love very much. She also explicitly commented that she likes the fact that the two names bring them together, whilst at the same time differentiating them as separate persons. Listening to her explains this. Less, l sorry. Listening to her explaining this... I got lost... Um, I could see that her sense of personal connection with the whole series constitutes an important source of personal security, which is foundational of her own, her own sense of being herself, her arena of presence and action. Being secure in her personhood and being secure in a familial insertion are cumulative and mutually reinforcing. 
I could actually give you whole lots of extractions from interviews of people explaining that if, that if you're not whole within yourself, then your family suffers and, and vice versa. This, however, could have been challenged by the fact that one of her sisters is called Laura. Does this person feel somehow left out of family life, or alternatively, somehow raised above the monotony of the rest? This was a question that has haunted me since I first hit on the notion that breaking the series is of the essence of Brazilian onomastic seriality. One of the first series of names I recorded was Adailton, Ademar, Adriano, Lucas, Adrielli, and Adriana. I asked Adriano, a boy of about 16 years of age, why his brother was called Lucas, to which he replied that it was when his mother became a believer, Crenci, a member of the Neo-Pentecostal Church. Did his brother mind being called that, I asked, but Adriano could not understand at all what I could possibly be asking. It just made no sense. Similarly, Hivian just shrugged her shoulders when I asked about Laura. Finally, one day, when having dinner at a friend's house in Valencia, I met two educated sisters. One of them was part of a series of Eus, the father having been called Eugenio, and the other was the exception, Indianara. I asked my question again, and being married to a Frenchman and having lived a long time in Europe, Indianara saw what I was getting at. But she claimed never to have thought about it, uh, and not to be aware that it might have been a bad thing at all. She claimed that now that I made her think about it, she could see that she did not dislike having a different name, as it made her feel somehow special. In any case, she claimed all her siblings had related names, and this meant that their family was a very strong family. In the case of Osvaldo, Osnivaldo, Osvaldino, and Ananias Jr., the serial O refers to the mother, whilst the last son somehow reinforces the associative link by referring to the father. But in cases like Lukács and so many others I encountered, the dislocated name is a simple matter-of-fact response to a biographical accident. The breaking of seriality is a way of leaving seriality open, as Needham would have it of making family polythetic. The process is systemic only to the extent that it is systemically incomplete. What this means is that the cross-references among people that onomastic seriality proposes never rise above the persons they constitute. They do not form collective, abstracted schemes. In this way, one is reminded of Timingold's distinction between rhythm and metronymic time setting. Brazilian serialities are what he calls resonances, that is, modes of rhythmic harmonization of mutual attention. When I encounter a name like Rivien, Edivaldo, Osvaldino, and Adilson, I can safely presume that it rhymes with other names in that family. Thus, the name promotes familial harmonization. But, as there are always the Lauras, Lucas, Indianaras, and Ananias that break the series, the process never postulates family as closed group. Therefore, it safeguards the singularity of personhood in the face of its serial plurality, its individuality. It presents family... It prevents family from reducing personhood. It produces family resemblance literally in the way that Wittgenstein meant to attribute to the expression. Okay, so now I have to speak a a little bit about the issue of connotation because it's absolutely in there, right? Strictly speaking, do I have time? Um, Well, you have, um, I suppose, about another... 
20 minutes to ah, no, minutes. No, more than I need. Strictly speaking, seriality is a merely formal process. However, to the extent that the sound that produces the seriality is usually picked from a member of the generation above, it necessarily connotes that person, or in any case, that person's assumed qualities. To the extent that seriality functions as homage, homenage, another central concept in Brazilian family life, it necessarily connotes. This can be observed also in cases which, at first, may not even appear to be serial, but then, once one identifies the connotation, are shown to be so. There is, for instance, in Valesa, a medical doctor, the first letters of whose children's names form the acronym FAMILIA. Another such case is a colleague of mine who explained that she and her sisters had serial names. Being familiar with their names, however, I could not see why that was so. Until she explained, oh, but don't you see, they are all name nomis differentis. Um, by different, she meant uncommon, but uncommon in a way that she considered to be a source of value. Connotation and seriality seem to be inseparable in at least two ways. Firstly, people insist endlessly that the name they chose for their child must sound good. To a person like myself, brought up in Saussurian linguistics, and that's the impact that Hammond took a long time ago, such a statement can only be read as a metaphor. It is entirely destitute of literal meaning. But when I ask them to explain what they mean, they insist on the literal interpretation. For them, the actual sounds bear goodness. A mother once explained to me that her son's name is Kawan, because this is a soft, beautiful sound, and she does not want him to grow into a hard man. This I interpreted to be a comment of anger against the man who had fathered her child. <laughs> she seemed to be totally unaware, however, that for other people, the Amerindian name Kawan may actually sound rough and brutal. In Portugal, it would. Secondly, there is what the people call meaning. Names bear value. They promote the named person in some sort of connotative fashion. The fact is that seriality promotes connotation in a metonymical way, not in a metaphorical one. Not specularly, but through contagion. People are individual to the extent that they are co-presents with other, present with other people. However, once they achieve singularity through serial transformation, they become once again plural. As Marilyn Strathern would have us see, these are not processes of duality where two persons confront each other in specular mode. Rather, they are processes where plurality is created by varying a common principle. In order to show how that occurs in real life, I will now read a translated extract of a conversation between a female research assistant of mine and a young mother at the public maternity of Valencia in 2006. It goes like this. Question. Is Karine your cousin? Answer. Yes, and Kelly is her younger sister. They are children of my paternal aunt, Lucy Mary. Then there is my uncle Luis, whose children are called Clever and Klaus. They are older than my sister Katarina. Question. And is that all with the same letter K? Answer. Yes, all five. Clever, Klaus, Katarina, Kelly and Karine. I'm the only one out. I'm the only one of the cousins who escaped. I'm translating literally. Question. You are the youngest one, right? Why is yours with an A? Answer. My maternal grandfather wanted to call me Erika, but <laughs> Karine did not allow it because she said it was ugly or something. 
I don't know. In any case, she would not have allowed it. So they decided for Adriana. Question. But the ones with K, who was it that decided? Answer. My father's family. I was the one that broke out. He looked hard for one for me. Katyusha. Katya. Let us try a K, he would say. But then there was a fashion for a singer named Adriana. This is Adriana Kalkanyotu. My mother was in love with her and her grandfather also. So when people asked the baby's name, even before I was born, they started saying, it will be Adriana. So it stuck. Question. And why the K? Answer. Ah, it started with Katerina. It was the grandmother because of an actress. They still have an old journal with her name. It turns out it was Katrin Hepburn. Klaus Katerina Kleber Kelly. And the question goes, and Klaus? Well, there was my grandfather with Uncle Louise that decided. They decided on that because of a movie actor. So it was all because of actors. Answer. Also because of the meaning. This is this, this use of the word meaning, significado. My mother knew the meaning. I think it is because it is Russian. And for my own child, it's the same. The name has come to the head. The name has to come to the head. The, I'm translating literally. It means that it's got it's, it's to sort of grip you in the head as, as a kind of an obvious thing. And she completes. My mother insisted. Call her Mariana, joining Mario, the child's father, her boyfriend, with Adriana. But I said, no, I don't like it. I don't actually know now what the, she eventually named her child. <laughs> Never mind. So I stop here. Here we can observe three processes of seriality. The first one is the intragenerational seriality in case of a group of cousins who are brought up in close proximity. Why case is something that even the grandmother that fell under the spell of Catherine Hepburn might find it hard to explain. Nevertheless, this does not reduce the connotative logic of the reference. The second is the intergenerational seriality of the names Louise and Lucy Mary, itself a compound of Louise and Mary, which is a Brazilian version of Mary, and of Mariana, a compound of Mario and Adriana. The third is the way in which the breaking of the series, as it happens by Ego's own name, is interpreted as something that valorizes her whilst not diminishing or threatening the impact of the series. Being differenti, as she insists, is something that gives her value, but most of all it is something that does not diminish the impact of the seriality of K's. By the time they reached five names with K, the family members had had enough. The point had been made, there was no need to continue. By adopting a new naming mode for Adriana and linking her to a famous singer, they did not break away from anything, they merely added another process of value creation to the value already accrued. They change the rhythm without spoiling the music. Value is created in a cumulative constructivist fashion. Ultimately, I came to see that broken seriality was the norm, not unbroken seriality. For example, when the doctor whose children's name formed the acronym FAMILIA, first was Fernando, the others I forget, reached the sixth child, who should have been called with a name starting by I, his wife's health was in jeopardy. So they agreed to tie up their mother's ovarian tubes and jump to the final A. So, familiar. To go back to Ingold's metaphor, in a Beethoven string quartet, as much as in a jazz set, the rhythm of a musical piece can be suddenly changed halfway through the music in such a way that it does not destroy the enjoyment of the music, rather it lifts the listener up to greater fruition. 
There is, as it were, a change in scale that fosters the musical enjoyment by pointing to the possibility of an encompassing rhythm. Breaking the seriality with a nationalistic name like Indianara, with an evangelist's name like Lukas, or with a namesake of the father, Ananias, changes scale and thus, instead of watering down the participation, shifts it to a higher level, a more inclusive one. Similarly, jumping to the last letter before the series is completed, as in the acronym FAMIL, thus safeguarding the mother's health, is again a statement of familiar promotion. The failure to complete all the letters in the word, rather than making all of them less familiar persons, promotes familiar co-presence by a change in rhythm, as it were. So I conclude. Recently, revisiting Monica Wilson's uh, Neacuse ethnography, I was teaching it in Kent last term, I was strongly alerted to the myriad modes in which, in history, human imagination can produce company whilst at the same time company is that which produces humans. There is no humanity outside the realm of personal sociality. The apparent circularity in this process should not confuse us, as it is a temporarily structured process. The person is born as a member of the human species, but is not born fully human, as it is only in ontogeny that the person enters into human life. We are neurologically equipped with a propensity to enter the world of human communication and to remain within it through memory. But in order to enter into the world of human communication, we have to be enticed into humanity by other humans who had already been enticed by others before them, and so on and so forth, back to their origins. It is in this sense that Monica Wilson famously stated that Neacusa kinsmen were members of one another. As Daniel Hatto has argued, Nonverbal responding, quite generally, only involves the having of intentional but not propositional attitudes. The central propositional attitudes of belief and desire can only be acquired by participation, participation in what he calls unscripted conversational exchanges. That's his argument, and I'm convinced. Okay? It is by participating in complex communicational contexts where viewpoints clash and where we are subject to a series of diverse and scripted narratives and explanations, in short, company, that we are driven away from our infant solipsism. In his foundational lecture on the category of the person, Marcel Mauss has long ago noted that there never has been a tribal language where the word I, me, has not existed and has failed to express a clearly delineated thing. Apart from the pronouns that languages possess, a great number of them are marked by the usage of numberless positional suffixes, which reflect in broad terms the relations that exist in time and space between the speaking subject and the object of which he she speaks. End of quote. Such a comment could well be extended to include the processes of personal naming that we have been identifying in this paper. To know that one is a person like other persons, one has to engage in narrative modes of producing persons. Personal naming practices with a rich potential for connotation are essential for the child's constitution of its sense of personhood, as most would have it of its moi. Initially, the child sees itself and the carer as being the same before the world. The child is encouraged in that by the fact that the carers themselves are prone to this same process of mutuality. As Donald Winnicott argued, 
It is when other carers, third parties in the theatre of personal ontogeny, come into contact with a child and with its initial closest carer that it experiences for the first time that terrible sense of betrayal, of aloneness, which Emmanuel Levinas has theorised so extensively. In short, this is how it happens. If I am one with A and one with B, and A and B give out evidence of not being the same, then surely I have to be C. Memory of crossed identifications is what produces personhood. The aloneness of being C, of being singularly identified in the world. This is the process of triangulation that leads us from intentionality to propositionality, from solipsism to reflexive thinking. For it to occur, we have to engage in language. Narrative practices are intrinsic to each person's personhood, different as these are from historical context to historical context. All humans, therefore, tell themselves a story about their own selves, so to speak, but this story is not universal. To the contrary, it is deeply immersed in the localized historical processes that gave rise to sociality wherever they find themselves. The triangulation that is fostered by familiar name seriality is one of telling that story and at the same time of instituting social participation. And I'm using here participation in the Levy Brule sense of contagion. The R in the names Rivian and Hizis, in that it, const- uh, in that it constitutes, the, uh, it connotes the mother Helena, is one such constitutive narrative. But it does not limit itself to the mother-child relation. Precisely, it triangulates by bringing about a plurality of rhythms, and that is where Laura, Wilson, Winston, and Wiverton come in. What this means is that personhood is familial. That is, if the person is constituted in the way described above, the original experience of being person is marked by links that the person will carry throughout their whole life, in the sense that one can cast away one that no one can cast away the constitutive implications of the initial processes of self-constitution. The triangulations implicit in one's name, even when one's name changes in the course of one's life, are forever inscribed in our constitutive imagination of ourselves. The narrative we tell of ourselves, our arena of presence and action. In ontogeny, therefore, at any one moment, I am one with Helena, then one with Gizis, then I come into myself as Rivian. But just as at the same time I realize that Winston, Laura, and Halani all feel they are in some sense together. Being together in a dialectic of mutuality is continuously reenacted and reinforced by living together in an ever-complexifying chain of triangulations. Singularity emerges from plurality. The thinking person emerges from an experience of mutuality of being, as Salens has put it recently, somewhat redundantly. This is a process of being together whilst being differently, of having the same perspective upon the world and yet inhabiting different places. The processes of personal constitution are all processes that happen within narrative, and they are processes not of repetition but of invention, not of mimesis but of contagion. Thank you very much.